Hello. I think it's time to close in prayer. <laughs> I love Christmas. I love everything there is about this season. I love the sounds. I love the food. I love the songs. I love the food. <laughs> I love everything about Christmas. Oh, I know there are theologians that are upset with the date. But I'm not worshiping a calendar. I'm worshiping a Christ. I'm not concerned about the solstice. I'm talking about my Savior. When they talk about the influence of the stars, I'm not influenced by the stars, either the heavenly ones or those in Hollywood. I'm influenced by the Holy Spirit and by my wonderful Savior and the Scriptures. Will you have a word of prayer with me, please? Father, thank you for your grace, for your goodness, for your mercy, for your love. Thank you, my Father. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing unto you, my Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer. For I ask in your name, Amen. I love Christmas. I love everything there is about it. I love the gifts. And the Lord has given me some wonderful gifts. He gave me the gift of salvation. He gave me the gift of a fabulous family. He's given me the gift of a wonderful pastor. He's given me the gift of being a part of a delightful church. He's given me a gift, and I'm grateful for him. For the friends, oh no, see, the few friends that I have. I thank you for the men who counseled me over the years, who put up my eccentricities and my peculiar sense of humor. I love Christmas because of the gifts. Do you mind if I just talk to you this morning? Is that okay? I'm too old to preach. I love Christmas. In thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about this morning, every time I mused on the text, the name Brad Ball came to mind. And that's kind of strange. And yet, the more I think about it, the more it synchronizes and hyphenates. You see, Brad Ball 
is a brilliant artist. He not only specializes in uh, graphic designs and digital design, he also functions from time to time as a lightning artist. In fact, at the recent crusade in uh, San Salvador on Friday afternoon, Brad put up an easel and canvas on the street corner and uh, was ready to paint. Lightning artist, they paint while somebody sings or some music being played. And that's what Brad began to do that Friday afternoon. It seemed to me when the lightning artist starts, the first thing they do, am I boring you yet? Give me some time. <laughs> first thing they do, they stand there and they look like a, the conductor of an orchestra. They're waiting for the dramatic moment. And as the sound begins to play, they stick up the brush and paint goes shoo, and they scar the canvas with this arc of color. Then they stick the brush in another can of paint and shoo, another scarring of the canvas. And they do this about three or four times. And then, <coughs> pardon me, they begin to focus upon some detail and definition. That's what Isaiah does in chapter 9, verse 6. He opens up by simply saying, unto us a child is born. Now that just seems to be common statement until he begin to understand he's talking about the cradle not any old cradle he's talking about the cradle that Micah says would take place in Bethlehem he's talking about the cradle of Christ Ah, oh, but you say, yeah, but everybody knows about cradles. Ah, oh, but take note a little of the significance of this cradle. For there are three exceptional factors attached to it. Number one, it underscores the fact that eternity invades Time. Wow. But number two, it underscores that infinity is reduced to the specter of space. Wow. You see, the word says it this way. Let me sound like my friend and colleague, Pastor Vic. When King Shlomo 
Solomon to be ordinary people. But when Shlomo was dedicating the temple, he said these words. First of all, he's talked to himself, then he talks to the congregation, and as he talks to God, he says, but can God, who the heaven of heavens can't contain, can God live in this place? This small box, magnificent, because of gold and silver. But Shlomo was asking, can God live in this place? Paul says it's a mystery because it's God manifested in the flesh. In other words, eternity became reduced to a cubit. If Solomon was amazed that God could dwell in a small building, just think of God dwelling in a cubit. Ah, but there's more. Not only was eternity reduced to a cubit, but we have deity reduced. Pastor read the passage this morning from Colossians. And last week, Pastor gave a brilliant dissertation on what theologians call the kenosis, or the contraction of God. Pastor read this morning that God, through Christ, created all things. Not only created all things, he sustains all things, for all things are by him and all things are for him. Yet here is this creator coming to such a way as to be encompassed by a molecular structure, a tiny molecular structure. Aliens would call it an earth suit. We humans call it a body, a tiny, tiny body. That's what Isaiah says as he put the first flash of paint on his canvas, except he's not using paint, he's using words. He speaks of the cradle. But he goes further. He's not only has he given us a child, he's given us a son. He changes the object from the cradle to the cross. Because in the giving of the Son, 
John records it this way in chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Let me skip a verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Isaiah in the second flash is speaking of the cross. Oh, we know that Isaiah didn't say very, very much about the cradle. But he says a lot about the cross. In chapter 53, he says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up as a tender plant, as a root of the dry ground. He hath no form, no comeliness. There's no desire of him. He goes on to say, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He goes on to simply say, he was speaking of his death. He was buried with the rich. He goes further. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He's speaking of the cross. My friend, the awesome gift, not just God being contracted of eternity to time, of infinity to a cubit, of deity to a miraculous structure. He's speaking of God dying on a cross. Wonder of wonders. Amazing grace. Amazing love. An astonishing it's incomprehensible. We can't get our minds around it. Our hearts are not big enough to understand it or to embrace it, except that we know it is true. And to us, a child is born with the first splash of paint. And to us, a son is given in the second splash of paint, and the government shall be upon his sh shoulders. You see, Isaiah could not stop having mentioned the cradle, having identified the cross. He goes on to speak of the crown. The hymn writer says it this way, the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. 
speaking. Isaiah said it this way. Having made the pathetic statement, who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. If that were the final words of the chapter, we would all be in misery. We'd all be lost. But he goes on to say, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. For by him this righteous shall restore many. And this morning, around the world, many is an understatement because there are millions and millions and millions and millions of people who are simply honoring the king, honoring the king and worshiping him because of who he is and thanking him for what he has done. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Oh. If you're clapping because you think I've finished, you're, de you're deceived. But like Brad Ball, having put the flashes of paint on the canvas, he now becomes responsible to give definition and detail so that a picture will come forth. And Isaiah does two things. Having introduced the cradle, the cross, and the crown, He gives definition to these two aspects. He speaks of the nature of the kingdom. And he speaks of the nature of the king. Because in verse 7, he goes on to say, Having spoken the government shall be upon his shoulders, he says, yes, but this is what that government is going to be like. For the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. That's wonderful. It means to say that he's not going to be outvoted. He's not going to be impeached. That wherever he rules, he's going to produce peace. Peace. But then he goes further. He speaks of justice and righteousness being the ingredients of his government. Let me speak on three aspects of kingdom now. The theology of kingdom now. You see, friend, the kingdom of 
above us is perfect. Say it with me. The kingdom above us is perfect. Paul, in his prayer for the, the church in Ephesus, at least as found in the Ephesian encyclical, he makes the statement that I want the eyes of your understanding to be enlightened so that you'll comprehend three things. Number one, the hope that you have. Number two, the greatness of the power. And then he defines the greatness of this power by simply saying, it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead and given the place which is above every authority in heaven and in earth, and given a name which is above every name, both in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, and hath put all things under his feet to the church. The kingdom above us is perfect. The Lord himself, speaking to John, started this way. I am the Aleph and the Tav, the Alpha, the Omega, the A and the Z. Oh, sorry, I'm in, I'm in America. The A and the Z. I am the first and the last. I was dead, but I'm alive and alive forevermore. And what's more, I hold the keys of death and hell. The kingdom above is perfect. Hallelujah. In fact, the heavens, the heavenly choir, it's a little bit better than, than you acquire, Brent. <laughs> you is a spectacular, but you want to hear that one. They sing the song. Oh, look at that ugly thing. <laughs> I need a haircut. <laughs> what did I say before I got interrupted? The heavenly choir sing the song to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power and might and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. The kingdom above is perfect. The kingdom within is progressive. Say it with me. The kingdom within is perfect. It's progressive. Allow me to speak Texan. I ain't what I used to be. I ain't what I'm going to be. I is what I am. <clears throat> By the grace of God and for the glory of God, the kingdom in me is progressive. Don't point a finger or condemnation at me because God's not finished with me yet. I'm a work in progress and so are you. 
The kingdom of heaven is perfect. The kingdom in us is progressive. But the kingdom ahead of us is prophetic. The writer of the Revelation had insight to it this way. At the sounding of the seventh trumpet, something began to happen. And a voice came forth. The kingdoms, sorry, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. But that underscores something else. The kingdom above me is perfect. The kingdom within us is progressive. The kingdom ahead of us happens to be prophetic. It's yet to be. But obviously, there's another kingdom. Because it speaks of the kingdom of this world. In other words, the kingdom above us is perfect. The kingdom within us is progressive. The kingdom ahead of us is what? Prophetic. But the kingdom around us is polluted. That's why uh, even as Paul writes in the church after that says, all things are under his feet. He's speaking of the heavenly realm. The writer of the Hebrews modifies it in chapter 2 by simply saying, we see not yet. One of the three major not yet of the New Testament. We see not yet. All things under subjection. You can bemoan the fact. You can curse the fact. You can bewail the fact. You can do whatever you like about that fact. Or you can do what the writer of the Hebrew says. We see not yet all things in subjection. But we see Jesus, who is made a little over than the angels, crowned with glory and honor for the salvation of our We can either look at the situation around us, or we can turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full at his wonderful face. And in so doing, the things of earth, they lose their hold. 
they lose their terror in the light of its glory and grace. But look at the nature of the kingdom of this world. Isaiah speaks of it in chapter 59. In fact, it's a contrast. The, the nature of the kingdom within us is that of reverence. The nature of the kingdom around us is rebellion. Everything in the world is based upon the our world, rebellion. The rebel against everything. Let me read the text because my memory is not as good as it used to be. I need to read it. Isaiah said it this way in verse 14, speaking of the world around us. Justice is driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the street. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. Whoever shuns evil becomes a prey for things. The element, the expression, and the description of the world around us. Even as the kingdom within us takes on the nature and the characteristic of our King, King Jesus, so the world around us takes on the character and disposition of its ruler, the prince of the power of the air, who came to steal, to rob, and to kill. Four things are evident in the kingdom around us. The judicial system has been compromised. The Bible speaks very eloquently against unequal balances. And yet that is the condition of the world around us. If you belong to a certain category, you can get away with stuff. If you don't belong to that category, you'll get clobbered. The judicial system has been compromised. Justice has been driven back. The governmental system has been convoluted. Righteousness is at a distance. Oh, how the church cries for righteousness to be established in politics. I'm not a political being. I'm a Christian. I don't belong to a political party. I'm a monarchist. 
I believe that Jesus is my king. But I weep when I look at the governments of our world, how convoluted. They say one thing with their mouth. In fact, they speak from both sides of their mouth at the same time. And they can't even speak the truth of the center part of their mouth. Righteousness is at a distance. The educational system has collapsed. Isaiah says, truth has fallen in the street. We need to cover every educator with prayer because they're fighting a losing battle as far as this world is concerned because of the instinct of rebellion, because the hatred that they have of righteousness. It's not because they're bad people, it's because they've got a bad ruler. And his desire is to corrupt and to desecrate anything and everything. Truth has fallen in the street. He goes one one step further. The societal system is corrupt. Listen to the term. Whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. It used to be for those who shunned evil that they were esteemed, they were honored, they were given a place of authority and distinction, not no longer in that kingdom. Now, if you address righteousness, if you oppose evil, you're a marked individual. That is the nature of the kingdom around us. The kingdom above us is what? The kingdom within us? The kingdom ahead of us? The kingdom around us is polluted. Ah, but I can't finish on that negative note. Isaiah has spoken of the cradle, spoke of the cross, he spoke of the crown, and in speaking of the crown, he's given definition of the kingdoms. But then he also gives definition of the king. And it's found in the latter part of the first verse. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Pelioetz, 
Elkibur, Abiad, Sal Shalom. His name shall be called Peliowitz, Wonderful Counselor. Hallelujah. I want you to know if you need a word of advice, make prayer your first response, not your last resort. In fact, that is the principle of these last four elements when you're talking to the king. Make prayer your first resort, not your last response. Your first response, not your last resort. I've been on this planet a long time. I've been a servant of the church for a long, long time. And during that time, I have been both amused and angry at some of the things people have shared with me of what they received from so-called Christian counselors. Amused because oh, that's, that's weird. Angry because I said, that's wrong. They may have gotten that from a book, but they didn't get it from the book because it contradicts everything that our king stands for, what our king de decrees. Church, if you find yourself in a quandary, I said quandary, not quarry, although they both describe the same experience, don't wait. Turn to the great counselor. He'll give you a word. He'll give you a word of advice. He'll never steer you wrong. You can trust the word of Jesus. You can trust the word of God. You can trust him to tell you the truth. This Peleowitz the wonderful counselor. He is all full of wisdom. In fact, James makes a statement, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth liberally and abradeth not. If you need wisdom this morning, don't wait till the end of the service. Don't wait till you pray over your meal. Whisper a prayer now. God, open my eyes to see. Open my ears to hear. Let me have a word from you of what I'm supposed to do, how I'm supposed to react. I gotta, I gotta hurry to a close. I've already been way over time. Forgive me. God, you forgive me. 
is part of the responsibility of the kingdom within you. Peli Yowitz. El Kibo. I love this. I do. Mighty God. Is there anyone like our God? Can anyone do what our God does? Look what he's done for you. Look what he's done for me. He brought me out of the pit. No, I'm not talking about a coal mine. Something deeper and darker than that. In a pit of despair. In a pit of delusionment. In a pit of rebellion. Because I was abandoning my faith. He reached on his arm. The cross, the straight bar goes from the throne to the hell. Its horizontal bars embraces everyone in time. El Kibu, is there anything too hard for him? As Paul says unto him, who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you can ask or even think according to the power that works within you. He said works within us. Is nothing too hard for my Lord? Oh, but you don't know my problem. Yeah, and it wouldn't help you if I did. But he does. And the one who is all wise is the one who is all powerful. Ah, oh, they go further. Here the Abiyad, the everlasting father, because of the rebellious system of this world, fathers, and the term father has become in disrepute. But not this father. You see the hallmark in the world around us with regard to fathers. It's threefold. Let me just give you two. They're either absent or they're abusive. Not so this father. This father is never absent. That's why he's called the everlasting father. He's ever present. You can count on him being there. And he's certainly never abusive. In fact, even when he corrects us, he couches correction with comfort. And then he challenges us. You can do it. I can't do it. Yes, you can. No, I can't. He said, that's why I sent the Holy Spirit. For you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you can do it. The everlasting Father the prince 
The Lord Jesus, speaking to his disciples, who were to say the least bewildered, he had spoken of his death. It's Wednesday night. They've just had dinner. He talks to them. He says, in the world, you'll experience pressure. The world will squeeze you. But do not be afraid, for I have overcome the world. And in me, you shall have peace, the peace of God, to rule and to reign in our hearts and in our lives and in our minds and in our hearts. That's why I remind myself the disposition in the world around me is rebellion. But the call that's in my heart is reverence. Oh, come, let us adore him. His name is Jesus. He's Christ the Lord.